to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome a guest on the show. Michael Johns will be with me for the entire show, and we're going to cover some pretty interesting stories that have been keeping the networks very busy. Of course, you know, we won't be covering the stories the way the networks do. As always, you can count on the fact that we'll be telling it as we see it, which is something else entirely. Michael was an analyst for the Heritage Foundation, and he went on to become a speechwriter for President George H.W. Bush. Later, he was a proud founder of the Tea Party movement. Michael is co-host with Malcolm on Viewpoints Presents every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. So mark that down and don't forget to listen. So welcome, Michael. It's good to have you on the show. Hey, Alana. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. So let's start off with a story that broke on Monday morning. Chicago's Magnificent Mile is no longer magnificent. On Sunday night, that famous shopping street, which is lined with upscale stores, was virtually destroyed by crowds of smashers and looters who did $60 million worth of damage and injured 13 police officers. You sort of start with, I think, an appreciation that this is just raw violence. This has nothing to do with George Floyd or Minneapolis, which is now well over two months ago. Spent a lot of time in Chicago. Magnificent Mile is kind of the, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe the Fifth Avenue or Rodeo Drive of, uh, of Chicago. It'll, as you say, a lot of upscale scores. You got like Saks and Gucci and Prada in there. And, you know, this really is just uh, unrestrained, non-ideological hooliganism uh, that's done extraordinary damage to property and to stores and to, uh, um, you know, into into individuals, too. In this case, uh, you know, a a, a police officer who was uh, assaulted and it's over 100 people arrested. So this is uh, I think we've really reached a point where. Firstly, I think the American people are tiring of this. I don't, I don't think they see any higher cause being served by any of this violence. These aren't protests. We should cease calling them protests. These are, um, this, is, this is street violence. It's felony level street violence. And what's, I guess, most disappointing about it is that our law enforcement system, which is rooted in our constitutional uh, framework and in democracy ultimately does rest on local officials, elected officials' uh, willingness and commitment to enforcing the rule of law. And we've broken into uh, sort of new uncharted waters here where we have mayors and city councils that are just simply choosing certain crimes, serious crimes not to um, enforce or to police. And that is a horrific miscarriage of justice. And it's dangerous because it sends a message nationally that this uh, sort of you know, behavior is, is uh, permitted and almost even encouraged. One of the more bizarre responses from Black Lives Matter about the destruction that was done in Chicago 
there were two actually. The first one was, well, it's okay what they did because first of all, the, the stores are, they're insured, so they're not hurting. It's not going to hurt them at all. And secondly, this kind of looting really enables people to have enough money because they sell the items they steal, uh, have enough money to feed their families. And that's a good thing. And then another another person from either from Black Lives Matter, I think it was from Black Lives Matter, and he said that this was a form of reparations for slavery. I mean, that was even more bizarre. So this is this is what happened in Chicago. In Seattle, the city council voted to eliminate 100 police officer jobs and uh, also to uh, eliminate a program that they had, which was outreach to the homeless community to help them in, in whatever ways they could. So we have a situation which is essentially totally... It, it, is, it is becoming, the question I guess I have is, is this becoming the norm rather than the exception? You have Seattle and Chicago and you have New York City. Have you seen the videos, uh, Michael, of, of New York City, of Fifth Avenue, all boarded up block after block after block? There are no stores there. Well, and, you know, Walnut Street, Philadelphia, and, uh, you know, some of the, you know, almost every major city in this country that has sustained some level of damage. And some of them, I think, are going to spend years, you know, rebuilding. And they haven't always been, as was the case in Chicago, these high-level national chain stores. By the way, the fact that they have insurance is uh, not particularly relevant. Uh, premiums go up. Someone ultimately pays. And it's, you know, this, these were felony-level crimes. You know, and also, I think, importantly, um, and we launched our Tea Party movement in 2009 and put a lot of focus, understandably, in taking back the federal government, which we were successful in doing with taking back the House in 2010 with the big sweeping Tea Party victory of 2010 in the Senate in 2014, and, and ultimately kind of laying the grassroots groundwork for a populist uh, Donald Trump to run in 16 in a lot of ways. But I had said all along, and I still believe this to be the case, that these local governments, and um, and even suburban governments and county governments are hugely important. These are where, if you don't get it right, some really, really bad things can happen. And they really don't have, aside from the courts, the checks and balances that you typically see in a federal government where, you know, cases will quickly end up in the federal court or, you know, Congress won't agree or one or the other body will agree and the other one won't takes a lot of things to get legislation done and to get action on a federal level. On a local level, a handful of mayors who basically have concluded that it's uh, somehow in their policy or political uh, advantage to allow this violence to go on, and that really has been enough for it to occur. There is such a thing as prosecutorial discretion. That's always been rooted in the fact that there's really more crimes than there are law enforcement ability to enforce the law, but you can't take sweeping huge amounts of violent crime and throw them in that category. That's never been, that's the most threatening type of crime really in this country that, you know, that has threatened lives and people have lost their lives throughout the last two months over this. Innocents who have been killed and not law enforcement uh, either. They've been, you know, typically fellow protesters at these 
riots. I'm, I'm at the point where I'm not going to call them rallies anymore. But, you know, even in, in Seattle, I think if you look at that Chaz unit that was set up, the basis of that, Alana, was really to kind of prove to the rest of the world that a society or a community could be developed and self-organize without a law enforcement presence. And in 10 days, they had two, two innocents who were killed. It proved the exact opposite of the thesis that they uh, sought out to improve. So, you know, it's kind of whatever your feeling is about law enforcement in this country. And I'd be the first to sort of say that I think there's always opportunities for reforms and there's no excuse for the excessive violence that was uh, uh, used in uh, the George Floyd case. A civilized society and a democratic political society cannot function without the rule of law being enforced. And that's what we're confronting. Now, you ask if this is the new norm. That's a good question. I, I think this is a very political moment in our country's history. And it's very difficult not to view all of this through the prism of the November election. If Obama was president or you know, if there's a Democrat in there right now, if it was Hillary Clinton, would we be confronting this? I don't know, maybe to some extent, I don't think to this magnitude. I think there is a conscious, organized effort on the left that has been well-funded and is um, essentially Marxist in its political ideology that has set out to create a sense of chaos as Americans go to the polls on November 3rd. The only good news, and I think this is true of coronavirus too, is that when you really think about these two crises that have upended our country the last few months, first with coronavirus clearly was released consciously, deliberately, presumably by China. Uh, It was not the creation of this administration or this president. In fact, he's done a pretty good job managing something that's very difficult to manage. And certainly the George Floyd incident and the ensuing unwillingness of these mayors to enforce the rule of law is also not on Donald Trump. I think the country over the next you know, less than three months now are going to look at these two crises and start to realize that the bad guys in, this, in these cases are not at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The bad guys are in Beijing running the Communist Party of China. And they are the Democrat mayors that have very unsuccessfully run these cities for decades now and now, presumably for political purposes, are refusing to uh, defend the lives and property of the citizens who elected them. Yeah, you know, this is a very interesting point because I cannot, for the life of me, understand how someone who is mayor who has been given the responsibility of, of representing the people in the governance of the city or the state, how they can sit by and accept the destruction of the city that they're sworn to, to protect and to support the idea that they don't need a police force in the face of all this violence and destruction. It does not make any sense at all. And I cannot figure out how the people of cities like Seattle and New York City and and Chicago, how they even get these people into office. Why in the world would they elect them? 
Here's how I think I can answer that question. I mean, we've talked a lot, uh, you know, and, and conservatives are pretty acutely aware of this. The fact that there's been a lot of money on the far left that has gone into not just federal races, but, you know, even to take this Illinois uh, and Chicago situation. Uh, you know, George Soros himself put $400,000 into this organization called the Illinois Justice and, and Public Safe, Safety PAC which in turn turned around and got Kimberly Fox elected as attorney general in Illinois. Now, of course, you know, she's gone about this broader agenda supported by Soros of selectively not enforcing laws like in California. They're not prosecuting uh, shoplifters under, you know, with property under $1,000. They're not enforcing disorderly conduct, which is the category this stuff falls into. And even when cases are being pursued and individuals arrested, you have in this Kimberly Fox, like 30% of defendants charges thousands of cases that are just sort of arbitrarily dropped. And this goes on and on. And they've also turned around this same Soros backpack and put over $400,000 into her re-election. And you can see this in other cities too, um, Philadelphia, where I've spent a lot of time. Larry Krasner is the DA down there just a very revolutionary, non-objective uh, way of pursuing the rule of law. He, too, is just randomly dropping lots of cases, attributing you know, a lot of the crime to social factors and not holding individuals accountable. Not in, you know, for all of their talk about, about the Second Amendment and, and gun issues, he's dropping lots of gun charges for illegal gun ownership or putting them into you know, diversion programs. And here, too, Soros has put $1.45 million in the super PAC for um, Krasner's uh, elections. And these cities go on and on. You really look at the fact that they have allocated a lot of resources into electing DAs and, and prosecutors that in turn are, are you know, appointed that, you know, really just have a, a very non-objective, non-committed to the rule of law approach to the way they go about things and, you know, see the administration of justice as some sort of social vehicle for evening out some sort of score. And the results objectively are really bad. I mean, obviously you can see on the streets, there's no fear of, of any legal ramifications. And you take Philadelphia, for instance, you have homicides this year up 30% over where they were last year. And that's in a city where there's already, you know, a bad murder rate that's earned the city the nickname Philadelphia. Um, and Chicago, obviously, is, I think, well known to people. Same situation there. You know, until you get serious about enforcing the law and policing these communities, and making it known that these are unacceptable acts, they're going to continue and even intensify. Yeah, I think you're right. And and uh, just to yeah, and you've actually brought us to a very interesting point: the crime rate that has has occurred as a result of this lack of accountability is enormous. In Manhattan, in New York City, homicides are up 118 percent since March, and there are tens of thousands of New Yorkers who are actually leaving the city for good, which is going to create other problems. And it brings me to the point that you were really explaining, which is that this isn't about 
Black Lives Matter. It's not about racism. It's about money and power. And it's politics. And this is one of the things that we're going to be talking about in the next segment. So what I really would like to wrap this up with is the idea that our cities are in enormous turmoil. The people who are leading the cities, who are the mayors and and the district attorneys and, and, and so forth, they are not doing their job. They're falling down in the sense that they are not supporting law and order in the cities that they are supposed to be running. And it seems as though the reason for that is not ideological nearly as much as it is a quest for money and power. Stay tuned, everybody. We will be right back. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. We are going to talk about the uh, politics and uh, the ramifications of Joe Biden's pick for vice president. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on with the COVID-19 virus. That's the virus from China. We call it the China virus or the Wuhan virus, but we know where it came from and we know who's responsible for it. In the meantime, we have to deal with it. And a lot of companies are coming up with new vaccines they think are going to be effective. So let's talk about that for a minute. Michael, what do you know about this? Well, Juan, if you go back you know, to January, there was a, you know, a lot of decisive steps were taken right away by President Trump that I think are very laudable uh, that have contained the damage of this. Number one was the you know, the travel ban that was put on um, China that prevented additionally infected uh, individuals from arriving in the United States. That really stopped the bleeding. Joe Biden famously called that uh, racist and xenophobic. We don't know when, if ever, he would have stopped the arrivals of infected individuals from China. And then all of the mobilization on the ventilators, which ended up being uh, completely satisfied and no Americans died for lack of ventilator ventilators, the mobilization of military assets for the purposes of freeing up um, acute care hospital space and um, the therapeutics and the, um, the fast tracking of some of those. And then obviously all of the economic relief and the, and the guidance on social distancing, et cetera. A lot of the burden falls to the governors, but the big issue here, the ultimate solution in the minds of, I think many Americans lies with the development of a vaccine. And when you have a virus that literally wasn't known to American researchers or clinicians as recently as seven months ago, um, it's incredibly impressive that we appear to be 
um, headed toward the development and approval of a, of a vaccine or vaccines for uh, uh, the China virus by the end of the year. And that's what I want to talk about right now, Michael, because there are efforts all over the world, many countries, dozens of companies around the world are trying to find a vaccine. They are going fast track as fast as they can to find something that will make people immune to this virus. And I want to just mention a couple of the problems with that. We have a virus that we do not understand. This is not a natural virus like we have seen in the past. This is a virus that was created in a laboratory. And it is showing signs of behavior that we have never seen before. And scientists are not sure what to do about it. For example, this virus shows different symptoms in different patients. Some patients recover and some patients don't. And the targets, it started out that the most vulnerable were the elderly, but now this virus is attacking children and we don't know why. And so when it becomes necessary to find a cure and a vaccine for it, we're at a loss and the companies that are looking for the solution don't have a whole lot to work with because this is a virus that as of May had mutated more than 30 times and become other strains of virus which behave very differently from the original strains. So this is something that these companies are up against. But the United States, the United Kingdom, and Israel, as three individual countries that are working nonstop to find this a vaccine and a cure, a therapy, they're still working. And there's a lot of hopeful progress that we are hearing about as, uh, as they, their own research progresses. Now, Russia and China have come out and say they have a vaccine. Really? Okay. Italy has also said that they have a vaccine. And we know that Israel has several companies working on this, and America has, I think, more than two dozen companies working on this. And we have yet to see firm results from any of this research, but it's hopeful. Yeah, you're exactly right, Alon. I mean, the the on a few fronts here. I mean, number one, the magnitude of work uh, that's being done globally is impressive. I think there's about 165 vaccines that are in development globally. Of those, like 30 of them are in in a human trial uh, phase of some stage of that, and eight, eight are actually at least advertised as being in the final stage. I just count largely the progress that's cited by Russia and China, and I can speak uh, with some detail about what's going on in Russia. I mean, they clearly have cut corners throughout this entire process. They really had no late stage uh, clinical trials on the safety or the efficacy of it. And um, uh, they're planning, they say, to have a mass vaccination in the fall, but plenty of questions about the validity of this. And I do think there's a uh, great degree of national pride and profit attached with you know, countries that come up with this. So that's one of the reasons that we saw such efforts by Russia and China to attempt to hack into uh, Western and U.S. Um, health facilities in an attempt to try to obtain some of the intellectual property that was going into the development of this. 
Um, in in the U.S. and in and in the and in Europe, I think it points to a conclusion that I haven't heard many people make, but I'll make it here: is that you know, for those who want nationalized healthcare, we would basically have no none of these standalone private companies that basically are at the forefront of the development of this, which points to the fact that you know, from the standpoint of quality and innovation, private sector you know outpaces government. That's pretty much an indisputable fact. And while no one anticipated this, uh, you know, we're, we should be happy that we have these great research companies in the uh, big pharma and also in uh, biotechnology that are available to do this work. So President Trump allocated about $10 billion uh, in the uh, with, in this project, which is called Operation Warp Speed. Typically, these vaccines can take as long as a decade to develop. And uh, with the support of the, what is essentially a public-private partnership, there's good evidence that this um, might be commercially available by the end of the year. Yeah, I think this is uh, uh, an important point. What you've the, what you've made about the efficacy and and take, testing the safety of these vaccines. This all takes time, and in the past, we have been notoriously slow in in making this uh, happen because our federal agencies are almost mindless. And it has cost our private companies who are doing this research, it has cost them millions of millions, probably billions of dollars over the years to develop new drugs because the process is so slow and so almost mind-numbing. And so what the president has done and what has been done also in other countries, I know it has been done in Israel, I don't know where else, but I assume it's been been fast-tracked in many countries. And as you say, in Russia and in China, we know that they are cutting corners and we know that they are not testing this in a way that we would find satisfactory. So we, are, we have to look at some of these uh, pronouncements that they found this a vaccine or that they found a therapy with a great deal of um, skepticism. And I, uh, I, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to do that. I would trust new drugs coming out of the United States, of the United Kingdom, of Israel. And I think that that, uh, in fact, there is an Israel partnership with uh, Moderna, an American company, and that's the kind of collaboration that I would like to see more of, because that's the kind of collaboration that gets the best results. When you put good minds together and they collaborate and they work together to create something new that works. Well, you know, at the and you know, just to add to some of the companies that are involved, I mean, you got Pfizer involved, uh, which, um, you know, is a, a New York City based uh, company. Good number of European companies, uh, GlaxoSmithKline um, is involved, Sanofi, AstraZeneca, um, I think you mentioned uh, Moderna, Novavax uh, was a big recipient of some of the federal aid, um, NIH, NIH is doing some of its own uh, research. And of course, the importance of our FDA approval process is one that should be reassuring um, to Americans, because you kind of have a balancing act in the approval of any uh, new pharmaceutical. I launched my healthcare career at uh, one of the larger pharmaceutical companies in this country, and these trials are hugely important. A lot of the drugs that never reach commercial viability because they don't get through this, or they prove to be not have the efficacy or not have the safety that's necessary. Uh, Michael, there's a question about 
let's say once these vaccines uh, or there is a vaccine on the market, what is the possibility that people will be reluctant to be vaccinated? If you look at it right now, there is a problem. Um, There's a thing called herd immunity where you essentially need to get 60, 70, preferably 80 percent of a population vaccinated on a communicable disease like this for to really be um, effective. And most of the polls that have come out so far, Washington Post, ABC showed seven of 10 Americans unwilling, uh, not inclined to get this vaccination when it first comes out. AP poll from late spring was a little better, showed 50 percent. Uh, but those numbers aren't where they need to be. So I think one of the challenges that exists right here is to, for the administration, is to start getting out front once the uh, vaccine is approved and making the case for it in, you know, national campaigns and community uh, presentations, working through physician offices, working through other influence sectors, maybe personality endorsements, maybe. But there has been over the last decade a considerable deterioration of uh, confidence the American people have had in vaccinations even before all of this, even on the MMR vaccine uh, and the and the correlation with um, potential side effects from that. You know, the confidence had gone from 94 uh, percent back in 2001 to 84 uh, percent in December of 19. So there already was sort of a growing anti-vaccination movement in this country. And that obviously is going to be a challenge Michael, I I think that this is uh, something we're going to have to have more discussion about because the vaccination and the development of the herd immunity is going to be very important, but we also have to win the trust of the American people. So I I want to leave this subject for for now and uh, move on to another story that is very current, which is that Joe Biden has chosen his vice presidential candidate, and it is Kamala Harris. That was not a surprise to you, was it? No, it was not a surprise to me. Uh, It was a surprise to me, actually, she hadn't done better in the primary that she did. I thought she has a compelling presence uh, background as as a prosecutor, where she comes across, I think, very persuasively in verbal communication. But that's kind of where the um, the positives on this appointment end. You know, firstly, for those who are looking for any degree of moderation, much less conservatism in this appointment, that's totally lacking here. Uh, GovTrack has her rated as the most left-wing U.S. senator in, two, in 2019. Uh, she deviates from Biden on major issues, supporting the Green New Deal, supporting Medicare for All, um, supporting, and, and I guess like Biden, supporting free health care to illegal aliens. Those are not positions that are too broadly supported, particularly the health care to illegal aliens that she made such a big point of in the campaign and is on the record um, of supporting. And then there's kind of this more complicated issue, but I think it's very relevant given the current climate with the um, Antifa and Black Lives Matter ongoing in the streets is the fact that her career really is one of a prosecutor. Um, And um, I could remember about last year sometime reading this New York Times piece. I went back and dug it up by uh, Lara Bazelon, who writes from the left about Kamala Harris's prosecutorial record in California um, very critically, writing, which I think this is persuasive, uh, 
saying, quote, time after time when progressives urged her to embrace criminal justice reforms as a district attorney and then the state's attorney general, Ms. Harris opposed them or stayed silent. Most troubling, Ms. Harris fought tooth and nail to uphold wrongful convictions that had been secured through official misconduct that included evidence tampering, fake testimony, and the suppression of crucial information wow. by prosecutors. That is almost to the extent that that movement on the street has any agenda, the sort of thing that, that I think is sort of accepted by the American people that we don't want to we want to end and yet amidst all of these options that were available to biden none of whom i think were all that compelling um they've chosen a prosecutor who has a, a, an extraordinary record um i mean you can hear the the the, the, the thirty thousand foot view on her uh complete rejection of criminal justice reform which of course this president has you know, supported intangible legislation and his accomplishments, but also just in an inclination of over-prosecuting uh, minimal crimes, including, um, you know, personal use, marijuana possessions and issues like that. This is not a candidate whose uh, prosecutorial background suggests a lot of favorability to the sort of reforms that I think the far left of the Democrat Party wants to see in our criminal justice reform. And that's unlike some politicians where that would be conjecture based on rhetoric. This woman has a pretty well-documented record of opposing those initiatives. One of the issues that we are dealing with in the consideration of Biden for president, one of them, is his health. It's the state of his, uh, his mental health and whether he is in fact uh, up to the task of being president. And let's assume for the minute that he is not and at some point needs to step down or is made to step down uh, from the presidency. That means, that makes Kamala Harris the president. How will she behave as president and what will she do to this country? Well, that's why I believe typically the vice president appointment is not one that has extraordinary political ramifications, even geographically, uh, which becomes interesting here because, I mean, I don't know of any sensible political analyst who believes California is in play. So they're foregoing any geographic benefit in electoral count with Harris's appointment. But I think it does become a particularly sensitive and important appointment given Biden's obvious um, general state of health, which, you know, I don't want to uh, offer a lot of conjecture about what's going on with him. I think he owes that explanation to the American people along with, um, you know, documentation from, you know, physical exams and, and maybe neurologists. But it's clear to me that the mental capacity that he had even, at, you know, five, 10 years ago has diminished considerably. There's almost no presentation that's not filled with minor gaffes or even major gaffes. And some of these are even teleprompter uh, speeches that are being read. Um, I, th I don't think it's a service to the country either for us to pretend that there's not an issue here. Yeah, I think you're right in, in not wanting to uh, take guesses about his mental capacity, but th there's clearly a problem. And at some point it's going to have to be addressed. I think this comes under the category of we just have to wait and see. Now, we're going to take an, a short break, but in the next section, 
I am going to give the microphone over to Michael and I'm going to ask you, Michael, to do a marathon. I want to hear as many of the president's accomplishments. We've been talking about other things. So it's time to, to pay attention to what the president has done in the three and a half years that he has been in office and what he has accomplished. He, he comes under so much criticism, but our president has actually accomplished an enormous amount during his first three and a half years. So let's focus on what he's actually done. When we come back, we're going to go through that list and we're going to do it in breakneck speed. So hold on to your hats. We'll be right back. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow Bannon, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right of free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Let's shift a little bit and talk about the president, uh, because as we're talking about the man who would be president, uh, let's talk about the man who actually is president and see what he has done as opposed to what uh, the career of the uh, man who is challenging him has been. Yeah, because if you had asked me to summarize the accomplishments of the man who would be president, that would be a fairly short conversation. In 47 <laughs> years of leadership, um, I really would struggle to name any uh, significant accomplishment that changed much of anything. And certainly the eight years of Obama and Biden were unremarkable. They left the economy with tens of millions of Americans on the workforce and really very little, no progress on wages, no progress on any of these flawed trade agreements, no progress on the illegal immigration crisis, a whole series of, of misguided foreign policy calculations that left us weaker. But this president, Donald J. Trump, in my judgment, factually, before January of this year, so you're looking at three complete years of his presidency from January of 17 to January of 20, had ex unbelievable accomplishments and unbelievable follow through and promises he made the American people. Two conclusions I draw from that are number one, as I knew would be the case because I endorsed them on day one, the policies he were putting forward were and have been successful for this country. 
And number two, uh, which isn't always the, is often not the case with political figures, he's a man of his word. And even those who you know were affiliated with rival Republican campaigns were raising questions that he would follow through. So you go through it and you say, you know, firstly, 7.3 million jobs created in those three years. He had the first major tax reform and tax cut legislation in three decades. That tax cut plan, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, was extraordinarily important in at least, I would say, three different ways. Number one, tax relief, particularly as lower income workers have you know, gotten to a point where they're not paying federal income taxes, they're not assessed federal income taxes, at least focused on the middle income workers. So you had 82% of the middle class that experienced tax relief, which was very important because the middle class of this country has been decimated. It has been hurt. It has not advanced really at all in this 21st century. And it has been the biggest victim of all of these unresolved challenges and, and problems in policy, including illegal immigration, bad trade deals, the erosion of manufacturing, et cetera. So second is he doubled the, the child tax credit. So, you know, any parent derived some ex- pretty significant financial benefit from that. I think that's that's really necessary and valuable, particularly as the costs associated with raising uh, children have gone up and there's really been no significant additional benefit given to parents. So that was beneficial. And then, you know, <clears throat> you have to deal with America's competition in the world and the fact that one of the most disturbing things in the eight years of Obama-Biden was that we'd lost so much in the way of economic leadership in the world. And one of the main reasons for that was that we had a federal corporate tax rate of 35%, which was the highest in the industrialized world. And President Trump, as he promised in his campaign, quickly brought that down to 21%, which makes us very competitive in the, glo- in the global economy. So that's beneficial from the standpoint of attracting companies to want to do business in the United States. And it also had this huge uh, repatriation benefit, meaning that there were all of this money that was being housed offshore because of the high tax rates of the U.S. and particularly in multinational corporations that was uh, being housed abroad for the lower rate that was able to come back to the United States. And that also was um, very constructive, you know, really from the standpoint of economic development. Obama and Biden in eight years are a lot of people haven't heard this yet, but it's got to be said over and over again. I think it's important. It's the first two term administration that did not have one year where their gross domestic product exceeded three percent. And this president had four quarters over three percent in the in those three years. Absent coronavirus, I think we'd be heading over it now. And I believe ultimately, given the next four years, there's no doubt that he's going to be able to get it there. The unemployment statistics have gotten a lot of attention, but, you, you know, you just can't dismiss these or their significance. He had, you know, um, American unemployment at the lowest rate Donald Trump did in 50 years. Given him a little more time, I think that ultimately would have surpassed that record, too. And then, of course, there were the um, demographic, the demographic numbers of you know African American unemployment all time low under Trump, Hispanic unemployment all time low under Trump, Asian American employment all time low under Trump. That's really significant. You look at where these jobs got created. I think back about the famous Obama line when he sort of mocked Trump during the campaign. How are you going to bring these jobs back? Do you have a magic wand? You remember that phrase? Oh yeah. And the magic wand was the policy. And so on the, you know, with the seven, over 7 million jobs created, he had 
half a million jobs that were created in manufacturing, the exact industry that Biden and Obama believe is gone, believe that can't return. 625,000 construction jobs, that which was an industry that was really completely decimated under Obama and Biden. Wants that apprenticeship program, which I think is reflective of the challenges we face in the 21st century of how you transition students into work life. That's very beneficial. First president really in decades to address the immigration crisis, which obviously was the centerpiece of this 16 campaign. Good steps in, in beginning to crack down on illegal gangs that have, have origins in Central America in this country. Deportation of illegals. Uh, and of course, the uh, construction progress that's been made on the wall, which in the absence of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer's assistance has become politically difficult, but he's found you know, a way around that as well, which is hugely important. You know, as you go through this list of all of Donald Trump's accomplishments in his first term as president, it occurs to me that one of the biggest accomplishments is the fact that he got so much done in spite of the opposition of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, in spite of all of the attacks on his integrity, in spite of the impeachment hearings and then the actual impeachment process. All of the impediments that were put in his way to distract him and to take him off course and to make him fail. And in spite of all that, he accomplished so much. And I know you're going to keep going on this list, so I won't take any more time. But I, I, I really think that that is his greatest accomplishment. And then you look at the, you know, kind of the, 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 some of the initial steps that were taken with the um, extraordinary steps in upgrading our defense capabilities, which had been really ignored during those eight years, trillion dollars into our defense the launch of the Space Force, which should have been done long ago. That's the next sort of frontier of, of um, challenges to U.S. security interests. And the restructuring of the NAFTA agreement, which was a big promise he had made during the campaign, and he delivered on it. And if you think back about that 16 campaign, they kept talking about how is Donald Trump going to possibly deal with Mexico after the things he said. Well, it turns out the relationship with Lopez Obrador has been as good of a relationship between the U.S. and Mexico as, as ever. And in fact, they have you know, deployed some of their forces toward toward the border, 6,500, I believe, to assist with some of the protection of, of the country, which is hugely constructive, and redone that NAFTA agreement in a way that um, removes some of the many flaws that originally were in it and should be constructive from the standpoint of um, U.S. exports and our trade balances with these huge trading partners. And it's important to remember Mexico and Canada are our two largest trading partners. You know, China's kind of been third. This decimation of MS-13 can't underestimate the importance of that. That was really beginning to grow as a menacing force. And this president, unlike a predecessor, took it really seriously, made a lot of arrests in the foreign policy and national security area. Just think about ISIS and how advanced they were. Um under Obama, really, you know, consu consuming and controlling vast amounts of territory in Iraq and Syria and beginning to operate pretty successfully from a terrorist standpoint. 
globally. That was immensely threatening. It was for a period of time there considered the number one national security threat to our country. You know, we don't hear much from ISIS these days. He he really decimated it, uh, decimated ISIS. Took took it to them. Took out their leader. Took out their forces. Liberated those areas. And you know, quite honestly, had that not been done, that region would be rife of conflict. Trade-wise, you know, also you kind of look at the steps with China, which are really important, and you know, starting to look at you know, our steel and our aluminum industries, and not allowing those to be decimated by unfair foreign trade practices and the original tariffs he put on, which I think have served a constructive step in protecting steel and aluminum, particularly. Got us out of the TPP, which was another flawed global agreement. Got us out of the Iran agreement, famously, um, which is necessary in part because we don't want to be engaged in financially rewarding Iran while they're the largest state sponsor of terrorism and while they're developing nuclear weapons. And so every evidence that that's continuing to happen. And got us out of Obama's flawed Cuba policy, which was rewarding the communist dictatorship there. At a time when we want to ultimately, hopefully, see the democratic political aspirations of the Cuban people realized and recognized, taking a very hard line on on Venezuela, not recognizing Maduro as the who is the illegitimate leader there now, and and recognizing the opposition forces that would constitutionally be the appropriate leadership in Venezuela, and obviously the, the tariffs and and sanctions that have been imposed not just against the government of Venezuela, but against their corrupt oil company and against a number of of officials, getting the EU to live up to their commitment to commit 2% of, uh, of GDP to the common defense of Europe, gave the ar- our armed forces the first um, pay raise in seven years, 2.4% into our armed forces, very important. Promised he would get us out of the longest war in American history in Afghanistan. And I'm not under any illusions that the Taliban are going to play nicely, but taken and lived up to that initiative that we're not going to be the world's policemen and that the Afghans really do have now after all of this time of our presence there an obligation politically and militarily to uh, work things out. You know, India, hugely important to the country of the world, our relationship and Trump's relationship with President Modi is really great. I think his visit, state visit there was immensely successful, as was his state visit to Saudi Arabia. These are two hugely important countries where I think um, our relationships have improved, uh, despite all the criticism of him, um, which is still illogical to me, of being a pawn of Russia, you know, deploying the lethal weapons to defend Ukraine and to assist Ukraine in that, kicking out a good number of uh, Russian embassy employees over concerns of, of their behavior here posing that pipeline in Europe, which would leave much of Europe dependent on Russia. And um, obviously the killing of uh, Soleimani, who was leading Iran's global terrorism and immensely behind support for Hezbollah and Hamas and the Houthis in Yemen. Yeah, it got us out of the Paris Agreement, which, you know, if you look at that agreement, it's unbelievable. China, as you pointed out correctly on your program, Alana, is the largest polluter in the world from uh, CO2 emissions and, and in other ways as well. And 
They were basically exempt from most of the provisions, and it was essentially a agreement that would have moved vast financial resources out of the United States uh, to other countries and would have had very minimal impact on the overall uh, environment. Any environmental initiatives, in my view, that don't include China or India aren't really globally serious initiatives. Estimates were that if we'd stayed in that agreement, which Biden would put us back into, if I understand his position correctly, $3 trillion of annual cost to our country from it, 6.5 million jobs projected to have been lost by 2040 if we hadn't gotten out of it. The president ended the war on coal, has gotten rid of a good number of regulations that were extraordinarily uh, costly to America's businesses and to our ability to compete in the, in the world good, serious approach to this opioid crisis in the country. And of course, taking extraordinary steps in resolving some of the horrific um, problems in our VA program, including establishing the hotline, which takes calls directly for problems and setting up the VA choice program and, you know, allowing veterans basically to see any doctor, even if they're not in that VA program. There were incredible amounts of waits and delays and mismanagement of patients and, and a good number of veterans who died simply because of, of a, an agency that under a department under Obama and Biden that was utterly mismanaged. And he, he also got rid of that policy that was precluding the firing of bad employees, which is one of the biggest problems in our federal government. Michael, I've been listening to you listing some, and I know these are not all, of the things that President Donald Trump has done in the course of his three and a half years in office. And I marvel at how much you have at your fingertips. And I wonder how you, how you do this, how you get to have such a wealth of information about what the president has accomplished. I go through every one of these segments. I look at the economy. I look at health care. I look at education. I look at foreign policy, national security. I look at the border and immigration. And I look even at the management of this coronavirus and all the complexities and demands of it. And I have to say this president's really done a great job, which itself would be extraordinary if he had a functioning Washington, D.C., but he doesn't have a functioning Washington, D.C. He's done a good amount of these initiatives with uh, Democrats resisting every step that he's taken amidst completely unjustified impeachment uh, initiative based on nothing that concluded nothing for which he was exonerated. Two years wasted in this unbelievably ridiculous Russian investigation, which just is a, the laughable assumption that the president of the United States somehow colluded with a hostile foreign power. And yet, you know, that's the sort of thing that I think would have brought a lot of people down. It's it's frustrating. It's distracting. It's time consuming. You know, Michael, for some people, it would be absolutely crushing. And yet this president just kept working diligently, focused on his goals, moving along methodically and accomplishing things to the point where he had in the fall, I believe, an almost unbeatable message. And now the question becomes, amidst the coronavirus, amidst the street violence, the question almost becomes, do these two most recent crises in our country almost strengthen his candidacy, not weaken it? I see no reason to believe that any of those 63 million voters who supported him uh, have gone away at all. I think they're going to come back out, and I think he's going to have um, support from many, many, many more millions in, in some of these crucial states and hopefully emerge very successfully. 
I think there is a what used to be called the silent majority that is very powerful but silent. And so they are not responding to polls, but they are in fact very eager to come out and vote for the president when the time comes. Well, my friends, uh, we've come to the end of another hour and it's been fascinating. I want to thank my guest, Michael Johns, for his very interesting and comprehensive insight into some of the really important issues of today. Michael, thank you very much for spending this hour with us. Thank you very much. Appreciate all you're doing. Appreciate your presence on America Out Loud and uh, your great show. And uh, thanks for having me. Michael, it's been our pleasure, truly. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report. 